Well, with that said, we are starting a brand new series today. It's called Songs of Summer. And as we are gathering each week this summer, we're going to be exploring some different psalms. And if you're not familiar with the Bible, a psalm is essentially a song. Now, the book of Psalms was like the hymn book or the song book for the nation of Israel. But it wasn't just for them. It is also for us. Now, the Apostle Paul, maybe you remember this verse in Ephesians, told the church in Ephesus that we are to speak to one another uh, with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs or songs of the Spirit. And so we have learned for thousands of years now that the psalms are essential uh, for us to learn how to talk to God, how to relate to God, how to know God. And I don't know about you, but psalms is one of my favorite books. Is that true for many of you? Uh, Many of you would say that. And I'm just trusting over these next few weeks as we're together that God's going to use the psalms that we study this summer uh, together. Uh, We're going to begin by studying Psalm 95, and if you don't have your Bible open yet, I want you to do that. And this is a psalm, really, which is about the subject of worship. And this is very appropriate because, really, the book of Psalms is preeminently a book of worship. Now, I'm calling this message today, Every Breath You Take, which is the name I know and you know, some of you, of a 1983 song by the police, uh, sung by Sting, and I do know it's sort of a stalker song, and it's a little bit creepy in some ways, but I was just thinking, Every Breath You Take is a phrase that just captures so well how worship ought to pervade our lives, like breathing Worship should always be with us. It should always be a part of everything we do. And, and Psalm 95 is really one of the classic texts in all the Bible about worship. And for centuries now, Christians have looked to this psalm maybe more than any, any other place in the Bible to teach us about worship because this psalm tells us what worship is and it tells us why we should worship and it also helps us know how We should worship. It's very practical. So we're going to begin by reading Psalm 95. I want you to follow along in your copy of God's Word. If you don't have one, the the verses will be on the screen. And this is what the psalmist writes. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. We're going to study this psalm in a little bit different way than we, we typically do this morning, and we're going to be kind of going back and forth across uh, the 11 verses of the psalm rather than just working from the beginning to the end, uh, and we're going to do that to draw out a few principles that I think we need to see, principles which really will teach us how 
uh, we, are, can, we can worship God with every breath that we take. So here's the first one. Uh, you can write this down in your notes. Understand what worship is. This is where we have to start. We have to understand what worship is. And the real problem for many of us is we misunderstand worship. Many of us think worship is music. And I've talked to many people who say, well, at our church we do worship and then we have a sermon. That's not true. That's not an accurate description of what should be happening in a church. Now, worship often involves music, and Psalm 95 shows us this, but worship is far more than music. Alongside of that, many of us equate worship with our feelings. We don't think that we have worshipped unless we have experienced or felt certain feelings. And again, worship does involve feelings. We're going to see that in Psalm 95. But it is so much more than just feelings. See, if worship is going to pervade your life, you need to understand what it truly is. And I want to give you a definition. I've, I've seen a number of definitions, but I'm going to give you this one uh, to help unpack some truths. And it's this. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your entire life as you do it. Worship is ascribing ultimate value to an object and engaging your entire life, your heart, your mind, your will, your, your whole being as you do that. Now, let me, let me break that down into a couple of parts. The first thing is this. Worship isn't worship unless it engages the whole person. True worship will engage all of who we are. Now, Psalm 95 is actually pretty easy to outline. There are actually three calls to worship in this psalm. Maybe you already noticed them. The first two are super obvious. Uh, the, the, the three calls are in verses 1 and then verses 6, and then actually kind of bridges between 7 and 8. Um, but they show us that worship starts as it engages the whole person. You say, what does that mean? Well, verses 1 and 2, this call tells us that we must worship joyfully. And this does address, we should worship with our emotions. There's emotional language in this psalm. Sing, shout aloud, thanksgiving, extol with music. So we are commanded to worship with our emotions. And then verses 6 and 7 say that we must worship submissively. So this is worship with our wills. It is the language of volition, bow down, kneel. And this is telling us that true worship always results in life change. When you truly worship, you do not stay the same. Does that make sense? And then lastly, verses 8 through 11 says that we must worship intellectually. And this means that we must engage our minds in worship. And this call here at the latter part of verse 7 is the call to worship. Hear his voice. Hear his voice. True worship involves listening carefully. It involves accepting what his voice, what God says. This means that there is doctrine and there is truth. This is the language of reason, of thinking. It's about thinking. It's about understanding. And when you put all of this together, it's your, your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions. True worship means that every single part of your person is engaged. So this means if you subscribe with your mind to certain truths, but you never see the beauty of the Lord in your inner being, and you never see that in, in such a way that it makes you weep and it makes you melt, if it's just belief, 
and there's not emotion, it's not real worship. If it's just belief and you never shout joyfully, then it's not worship. And I, I kind of want to say here, please do not use your personality type to excuse yourself from obedience to the scriptures because joyful worship is commanded here. Now, some of you like this, but you may not like the next part because we could reverse this. Because some of you are good at the shouting joyfully part. You know, you love the emotional part. But you could go to church and you could constantly experience great emotions. You could cry and you could laugh, but there is no bowing and no kneeling in your life. You have wonderful feelings. But it doesn't change the fundamental way in which you live. You come in here and you experience great emotions. You go out there and you do the same thing you did last week. It doesn't change your character. It doesn't change your habits. So week after week, you're just as prideful, just as anxious, just as bitter, just as harsh with your family. You're lacking self-control just as much as ever. Then it's not really worship. See, if there's feeling without submitting, or if there's believing without feeling, it's not worshiping. It's not an either or. It's both and. It's all of the above. Worship engages the entire person. Amen? Amen? That's good. You use your mouth sometimes, right? <laughs> Secondly, worship happens when you ascribe ultimate value to something. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you look at this psalm and you see all the emotion and all the great engagement, it is all stemming from, it's all rooted in, it's all founded upon something the psalmist is doing. And we see what the psalmist is doing as we notice a little preposition in the psalm, it occurs two times. It's the preposition for, F-O-R. In verses 1 and 2, it's about singing and shouting. Then in verses 3 through 5, we see, well, what is it that triggers all this joy? What is it that triggers all this singing? And the psalmist says in response, what's triggering the joy, the singing, the shouting, he says, for or because the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Why is there singing? Why is there shouting? Why is there all this great welling up of feeling? Because our God is the great creator God. That's why. And look at verses 6 and 7. Come. Let us bow down in worship. Let, let us kneel before the Lord our maker. So what, what triggers all this bowing and kneeling and all this submitting and all this life change? The answer, for or because he is our God. Our God. We are his people. Can you read those words and feel them, what it's saying here? We are the people of his pasture. We are the flock under his care. So in other words, God is not just a great sovereign creator God. Our God is also a shepherd. And this tells us that he's entered into a relationship with us, that he has made us his people, that he cares for us. Amen? See, all the emotion, all the life transformation, all the worship is coming from something the psalmist is doing and the psalmist is thinking about. He's pondering and 
weighing and contemplating. He is treasuring the excellencies of God, this greatness, God's greatness as a sovereign king, as a mighty creator, his goodness as a shepherd God who tenderly loves his people. In other words, the psalmist is meditating on, dwelling on the greatness and the goodness of God, and that requires our minds. And that requires that we are ascribing ultimate value to someone, in this case, Yahweh, our creator, God. You see, what's happening really in this psalm is the psalmist is thinking about who God is until this explosion of emotion and of life change happens. And until your whole life explodes with joy and as a result your life is changed forever, until those things are happening, that's not really worship until that happens. Here's a question to think about. You may want to write it down and and ponder it later this week. Have you shrunk worship down in your life? Have you kind of reduced it maybe to one aspect or one facet of what I've been talking about? Or are you seeing it holistically? Do you really understand it? Has it just become an emotional thing for you? Has it just become an intellectual thing for you? Does it rarely, if ever, result in submission in your life, in real life change? See, you're never going to know true worship what it means to truly worship, what it means to worship with every breath you take until you bring all of this together. You have to understand what worship is. Here's the second thing, so important for worship. Uh, We need to identify the object of ultimate value in your life. You need to do that. Can you do that? Can you identify the object of ultimate value in your life? I mean, do you know, are you aware I mean, let's just be honest. This is church, so we all know what we're supposed to say, right? God. I mean, you're going to say God right here, but the real question that you really have to ask yourself, that you really need to be aware of, is, is this true? I mean, is this really true in your life? Or do you have another object of ultimate value? In other words, do you have another God? Or maybe more than one. Do you have other gods in your life? Uh, Psalm 95, verse 3. Verse 3 tells us something that you may not see at first, but you need to recognize it. You can write this down. Everyone is already worshiping something. I don't know if you ever said maybe at some point in your life that you're not really a worshiper, you're not really that spiritual, you don't really, you're not religious, and maybe, maybe you've never said that, but you know people that say that. A lot of people think they don't worship, Right? How many of you know someone, if you ask them, they would say, I don't worship anything. Do you know anybody like that? Lots of us do. Well, here's the truth. Whatever they say, it's not true. Everyone worships. We are wired to worship because God created us. Everyone worships. Everyone is already ascribing ultimate value to something. Your life, whether you realize it or not, is already controlled by and oriented to something to which you have ascribed ultimate value. Do you know what that is? Maybe you could put it this way. The world is really not divided into people who worship and people who don't. The world is divided into people who worship things that distort and ultimately destroy their lives. In other words, people who worship the wrong things and people who worship the only object proper, worthy of the worship of their souls. Those are the only two options. 
you either worship things that distort and ultimately destroy your life, or you worship the only object worthy of your soul's worship. Those are the only two choices we have. You're either worshiping the wrong things, or you're worshiping the only one whose worship will not distort or destroy your life. Verse, verses 3 through 5 again. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Now, do you read this verse and think, well, that was written a long time ago. This is a very primitive way of looking at things. You know, from the times back then when people didn't know much, when people believed in many gods, you know, when they thought there was a mountain god and a sea god and a land god. And the psalmist is here saying that the great God is above all these other gods. So this doesn't really apply to us because we know there aren't any other gods and we don't believe in any of those gods. Is that what you think that says? And if you do, you're, you're wrong. Because what those verses really are telling us is that the very essence of worship is to recognize that your heart has already ascribed ultimate value to something. And you really won't be able to worship fully until you see this. Think of it like this. Worship, uh, learning to worship is a process. We have to learn to do that. Our souls have to be formed into true worship to do it the, the way the Bible teaches. So the process of learning to worship God is to recognize where your worship already is and then to transfer your ultimate value to God. In other words, true worship is not you doing something that you have never done. It is transferring to God the ultimate value uh, that your heart has already ascribed to something else. True worship is when you stop false worship and start doing true worship. See, the thing is, you already know how to worship. Everybody here knows how to worship. You've been worshiping your entire life. Does that make sense? You've been worshiping your entire life. The problem is we've been worshiping the wrong things. And we have to learn how to worship that which really matters. Only God. Now, again, I know that the average 21st century American will say things like, you know, what are you talking about? I'm not religious. I don't worship. You know, that's just for certain people that are into that kind of a thing. But, again, that is not true. Let me give you a, uh, an illustration of this. Some of you will really like it. Some of you won't really care for it, but whatever. Um, it comes from the first Harry Potter book, a movie also. Um, and in that movie, in that book, there is an object called the Mirror of Erised. Now, Harry Potter, the series is a children's books, okay? So the, the symbolisms are not real subtle in Harry Potter. Erised is desire spelled backwards, okay? Have that in mind. And so Harry Potter finds this mirror, and he looks at the mirror, and he's amazed as he looks into the mirror that he sees his parents. And the reason that's amazing to Harry is that his parents are dead. In fact, he's never really met them because they died when he was just an infant. And, and, but in spite of that, he looks into this mirror, and he sees them there, and they are looking at him, and they are loving him, and they are putting his, their hands on his shoulders. And he's so excited by what he sees that he runs to get his friend, the brilliant Ron Weasley. And he drags Ron back, and he says, look in the mirror. And he's thinking that Ron's going to look, and Ron's going to see his parents. But instead, Ron looks at the mirror and says, whew, 
I'm amazing. I'm a sports champion. I'm good looking. I am the leading boy in the school. And they can't figure it out until Dumbledore, uh, Harry Potter's mentor, explains that the mirror just shows you whatever it is that is the deepest desire of your heart. See, every single person has put their hope in something. Do you know what you've put your hope in? Every person says, you know, if, if I had that, I would be okay. If I had that, I would know who I am. If I had that, I would have true meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in life. If I had that, I'd be happy. See, everyone sees something in the mirror. So what is that thing? Everyone has one. No exemptions, no exceptions. Everyone is living for something that completely orients your life, that completely controls you. And, and if you read Harry Potter or saw the movie, you know that Dumbledore gets rid of the mirror because he's, he knows it's going to keep people you know, from wasting their lives. As long as it's there, they're going to waste their lives looking at it. There's an author named Rebecca Pippard, and she writes, Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who lives for acceptance by other people is controlled by the people that he or she seeks to please. One thing is certain. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lord of our life. So you have to live for something. Everybody does. And whatever that is, you are dependent upon it you desperately want it you are afraid of losing it you're freaked out when anything goes wrong with it so we need to be honest with ourselves we are worshiping we have already ascribed ultimate value to something or someone or some things or someones now the word worship english uh, comes from an old english word actually two words worth and shape and so it kind of tells us that there's a sense in which worship is to be sh shaped by the worth of something. And that is what worship is. It is to look at something and to say to that thing about that thing, this is so valuable, this is so essential. If I have that, then I am worth something. And when you do that, you are being shaped by it. And every one of us is, is doing that. You say, you know, if I could just achieve that, accomplish this then i'd feel like my life is worth something that i am worth something and if you say that about anything you are worshiping that thing as your god that thing is shaping you and again i keep beating this drum every one of us has something that they feel is worth more than anything else absolutely everyone but what the psalmist is telling us is if you want to change your life then you must take your heart off whatever that finite thing is whatever you are already worshiping and you turn your worship to god i'm going to tell you a story imaginary story kind of as an illustration to show you this i want you to imagine a a woman who's inherited a piece of jewelry from her mother and it's just been around the family for years no one thinks much about it one way or the other no one knows where it came from no one knows what it's worth and she just puts it on the top of her dresser because it's always been in her life her mother always had it and she forgets about it and then one day after a whole lot of years she comes across it again and she begins to wonder what is this thing worth, that old thing? You know, I think I'll get it appraised. So she takes it to a jeweler. And the jeweler takes it and examines it. He puts that eye thing on, you know. Um, he studies it. A moment later, 
the eye thing pops out. <laughs> and he says, wait. And he leaves. He goes to the back room, and he puts on a bigger eye thing. Um, he looks at it again, and he does some tests, and he gets online, and he does some research. And the next thing you know, this jeweler, his breathing is getting labored, and beads of sweat are popping out on his forehead because he's realizing that he is holding in his hand this long-lost historic piece of jewelry. And the craft with which it is made has vanished from the earth. No one knows how to do this anymore. It is unique in its beauty. It is virtually priceless. He realizes that this piece of jewelry is worth more than every piece of jewelry he sold in his store combined for the last 30 years. What's going on as he's realizing this? Well, his entire being is being engaged by the worth of an object that he is assessing. He's looking at it, thinking about it, adding it up, seeing its excellencies. He is ascribing value to it. It is beginning to explode in his life. The implications, what does this mean? Now, meanwhile, the woman's waiting outside, kind of bored, wondering what's going on. What's the difference between him and her? She actually owns this priceless piece of jewelry, but she doesn't know. Well, the difference is he is being shaped by the worth of it while while she is not because she doesn't get it at all. Now, what's going to happen next when he gets done? He's going to leave the back room, come out to the front of the store, and he is going to evangelize her. Think about it. He's going to preach the good news to her. He's going to come out and say to this woman, you know, you are more stupid than you could ever imagine. But you are also more wealthy than you have ever dared to dream. See, when she begins to realize what she has, when she begins to be shaped by the worth of it, it will change her life forever. She will realize that she has not been living in accordance with what she possesses. And her entire life changes when she sees its value. You see what the Bible is saying? See, so many people, maybe some of you, say they believe in God, but it hasn't changed their lives. They're just the same person they've always been. Maybe that's you. You're just as selfish as you always were. You're just as messed up as anyone else. Do you know why? Because God for you is like that piece of jewelry on the dresser. He's in your life, but you have no sense of his value, no sense of his worth. Who God is has never been taken down, down, down deep into the center of your life so that your life explodes with value, with joy, and you begin to change. In other words, you haven't worshipped You're kind of just still doing your own thing in your life. See, the psalmist really is calling us to do exactly what the jeweler does, and you have to learn to do it. And if you don't, you will be an inconsistent person at best. You will be a hypocrite at worst. Because everyone is shaped by the worth of something. And if you see this, you will understand why the worship of God is absolutely transforming. And you haven't really worshipped him unless your worship is changing your life. Do you know why you sin? For example, if you're lying, are you lying? Don't, don't lie to me about it. Are you lying? If you are lying in your life, 
Do you know why? Here's the reason. It's because you are looking at something besides God and you are saying, I have to have this thing in my life or my life isn't worth anything. You have to have your reputation. You have to keep your job. You have to make money. And so you lie. And maybe you don't want to lie, but you have to. And then you find yourself saying, why did I do that? And I'll tell you why. You might say, well, I'm a dishonest person. Well, yeah, you are because you lie. But the real problem is you're looking at something other than God in your heart, and you're saying, if I have that, then I'll be worth something. And you think you have to lie to get that because that's the thing in your life that is worthy, more worthy than God, something that you're worshiping more than God, and that's why you're messed up. You know, if you really valued his love over everyone else's love, his approval, over the approval of everyone else, then when someone criticizes you or you have a financial reversal, I mean, yeah, it it would be hard. But it wouldn't devastate you. It wouldn't destroy you. You see, do you realize, I mean, I could go on with these illustrations. It's just telling us all of our problems come from what we're worshiping. How about this? Do you sit around and daydream sometimes? Wouldn't it be so good if I could just make this much money? You know, that's worshiping. You're worshiping. You're, you're treasuring when you're doing that. And, and here's what I'm telling you. I'm not just condemning you and saying, don't do that. What I'm telling you, hear me, don't miss this. I'm telling you, do that with God. Do you ever sit around and daydream? What if I, oh, what if I knew God more? What if I love God more? What if I understood God more? Did you ever do that? Does that ever happen ever in your life? That's what it means to worship. And until you learn to do that with God, you'll never change. See, if you want to change your life, change what you worship. Change what you worship. Uh, Let me ask you another question. This is getting you thinking about some things. Do you know where all your problems come from? Don't look to the side, okay? (laughs) That's another problem. We'll deal with that in another sermon, okay? But here's the question. Stay with me. Do you know where all your problems come from? In other words, I'll give you some illustrations. Why are some people freaked out when they break up, lose a relationship, but other people kind of aren't? But then that person, you're, you're freaked out when something goes wrong with your money. But then... Person A, they they get freaked out over love but not money. Person B gets freaked out over money but not love. And then person C gets freaked out when something goes wrong with their kids because they absolutely must control their children's lives. They absolutely must make those children a success. They absolutely must protect them from all harm, danger, discomfort in their lives, period, the end. They must, they must, they must. That's person C. And then person D doesn't struggle with any of that. But it's something else. The Bible says your ultimate problem is always what you worship. And it's only when you see God as ultimate, it's only when you see God's love as more satisfying and beautiful and valuable than any other form of honor or pleasure that you will not be freaked out over getting criticized or over failing or over losing something. It is only when you see God's honor 
and a relationship with him as the most important thing. Now, let me just be honest with you. If you keep getting freaked out, you keep finding yourself just like rolled around emotionally, if you're constantly struggling with anxiety or despondency or fear of what people think, then nothing less than reassigning the ultimate value of your life from where it is now to God is going to heal you and change you and give you real joy. Do you see? If you don't understand that this is what worship is, that worship is not just coming to church and doing a ritual and enduring until that guy up in the stage finally shuts up. <laughs> worship is recognizing that you have already ascribed ultimate value to something, and then it is a process of every time, every time you reflect on him through singing and praying and hearing God's word, every act of worship as you do it with your whole being is healing you, is pulling your heart off of those things which control you and putting your heart onto the one thing that will not distort or destroy your life. See, a Christ follower, if you would look into the mirror of Erised, and you would see yourself perfectly enjoying God, if you could have one perfect act of worship in which you perfectly valued him as he is, then you'd be perfect. Nothing would get you down. You, you could just face anything. But we live in a broken world, and the truth is all of our acts of worship are imperfect, and therefore, little by little, as we worship over the course of our lives, as we get better at worship, we, we have our hearts changed as the Holy Spirit works through us and gives us power. We reassign the ultimate value uh, of our lives to the one, the only one who will satisfy us if we get him and forgive us when we fail him. See, if you're living for achievement and you fail that God, it will never forgive you. You'll hate yourself forever. If you are living for love and romance and family and you fail that God, it will never forgive you. You will hate yourself forever. God, friends, God, Yahweh, Yahweh, he is the only God who's a shepherd. And we are the people of his pasture. We are the flock of his hand. He is the only God who forgives you. He is the only God who died for you. See, why do we need to worship God? We will worship something. And anything else but the real God is only going to distort and eventually destroy our lives. Now, having said that, and having realized that worship is not just something that you do as a duty, that it is the ultimate need of your heart and of your life. I mean, if that is true, but we never get it perfectly, we, we, we can only work at it through the course of our lives, empowered by the Spirit to get better and better at it, then the last point becomes very important. Here's the third thing, because it's about how we can do worship well, how we can get more skillful at it. So write this down, practice the worship of God according to God's pattern. Now, three things that I want to mention here, real briefly, that you have to do to worship well. And here's the first one, and we forget about it quite a lot, but it is so prominent in this psalm. You need to worship in community. This is so obvious in Psalm 95. It's really one of the most important things about the psalm. If you notice, it's like all in the plural in this psalm. 
let us worship. It doesn't say let me worship. It's not, oh, come, let me worship. I mean, look at it. Let us, say us, sing for joy. Let us, say us, shout aloud. Let us, say it again, come before him. Let us extol him. Let us bow down. Let us kneel. It's all plural. That means it's all of us together. Why is that so important? Why can't I just pray at home? It's hot outside today. I mean, why can't I stay there and not have to travel to church? I commute all the time. I'm a really busy person. It's a lot of trouble to get to church, and I don't like half the people there anyway. That's another issue. (laughs) They don't like you either, probably. (laughs) Well, it's important that we Pray and read God's word and worship privately and individually. Do not hear any of this to diminish that. But the Bible is clear. Corporate worship has far more life-transforming power than just individual worship. Do you realize that the core of all of your problems is you are selfish? That's at the heart of sin, right? And do you realize if you're only worshiping by yourself, there's a certain element, even as you try to focus on God, that you'll never get pulled beyond that? We we need to be with other people. You see, in corporate worship, we are called beyond ourselves. You know, in corporate worship, we sing songs that you don't always like all the time. So what? In corporate worship, the pastor preaches on this passage when you think he should be preaching on that passage. Again, so what? (laughs) Sometimes we need to get outside of ourselves and and our blind spots get exposed and and we learn from one another and we are encouraged by by one another. I mean, there is so much to say here, but I hope you understand. We believe this so passionately at Southwinds. We need community. We need other people. We cannot do this on our own. You need to worship in community. Uh, Some study was done. 80% of Americans say you can be a good Christian and not go to church. I have no idea what people mean by that phrase, good Christian. I mean, if they mean that you can get saved and not go to church, well, yeah, maybe because you're not saved by going to church, but your life will never truly change apart from corporate worship. It's just never going to happen. Have you ever noticed this? When you quit going to church, does your spiritual life go this way or that way? I mean, you know what I'm talking about. And by the way, I have real doubts about whether a person who is truly saved is going to continually choose not to go to church. Here's the second thing. I'll just leave that one laying out there. (laughs) Second thing, you need to worship according to truth. You know, I think one of our, our persistent problems in our day is too many times we come to worship wanting to know, well, what problem in my life can I get solved today? How can the Bible help me fix me? And a lot of us assess the value of a a worship service according to how much that happened or it did not happen. Well, that wasn't really relevant to my life today. I've said so what so many times today, I'm not going to say it again, but that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> and again, we, we want to be practical here, and we, we are practical here, but how many of us long to know doctrine, to know truth? How many of us come to church yearning to understand who God really is, what it really means? 
to know and understand that Jesus died to atone for our sins, what it really means to know how the Holy Spirit wants to live and abide inside of us. I mean, I could go on and on. And again, if you're not paying attention, you might not see this, but Psalm 95 is so full of doctrinal truth about who God is. I've already sort of said it, but I'll just make it real explicit. You can just write this down. There are two reasons we're told to worship God. The first is God's greatness. It is all over this psalm. That's what we see in verses 3 through 5. God is infinitely powerful. God is infinitely greater above and beyond any other object of worship you might conceive. Why? Because he made everything. And you should ponder that. Secondly, Psalm 95 tells us about God's goodness. The great God, infinitely powerful, who created the universe is also intimately personal. He is our maker. He is our God. We are his people, his flock. We are under his care. He provides for us. He protects us. He guides us. He delivers us. Now, here's the point that I'm making here. Worship is always founded on truth. It must be based in truth, and we should care about truth, and we should be willing to think about truth and wrestle with truth, wrestle with ideas that we don't understand at first because, because we cannot truly, deeply worship apart from truth. Last, you need to worship restfully. Restfully. Now, probably the most puzzling part of this psalm and maybe you felt that when I read it at the beginning. It's kind of like it's on a downer note. God's really mad, and people are really going to suffer, it seems like. And it seems a little disjointed, but it's, it's really not. The last part of Psalm 95 goes back. It's referring to an incident that happened earlier in Israel's history. Remember the children of Israel, the nation was wandering in the wilderness, and every day, every day they had to get up and put up everything they owned on their backs and travel some more. I mean, think about that. They needed rest. And they wanted to get to the promised land where they could settle down and have their own homes. But while they were in the wilderness, every day they were burdened because they had to get up and put their lives on their back and carry it to another place. And they never got the rest. And then they didn't listen to God's word. They didn't listen to him at a particular place uh, called Meribah. Massa, you can read about it in Exodus 17, and as a result, they don't get into the promised land. That's all delayed for 40 years. Now, we go to Hebrews 4 in the New Testament, and we're told there that the problem that they had of not listening to God's word and therefore not getting that rest and therefore staying burdened their entire lives is actually symbolic of a greater burden and a greater rest. Now, you can, you can read that for yourself later in Hebrews 4. I don't have the time to read it, but here's what it says. It says, we are still burdened. We are still carrying our lives on our backs as long as we think that we are saved by our efforts, by our works, but we need to hear the gospel so that we can enter into the ultimate rest, so that we can enter into the rest of resting from your works. Here's what this is telling us. Every one of us looks at something to provide us rest. Our career, how good morally we are, you know, we check the boxes off. How many times did you read your Bible this week? And how many services of worship and 
uh, times of small group did you make it to this last month? How, many, how often are you obeying God? I mean, everybody looks at their performance, looks at their work. They do that to feel like their lives are worth something, like my life is worth something because I'm a good person. My life is worth something because I'm a moral or a, a religious person. My life is worth something because I've achieved this or I've achieved that, because I own certain things, because I have a family. But all of that only makes you burden because you're trying to get your sense of worth from your work, your performance. It's like carrying your whole life on your back and you're never sure it's been good enough. Is there anyone who's really tired today? You're so tired. You're so burdened. I want to tell you today from Psalm 95, if you never turn to God and God alone as your object of worship, you're never going to find rest. Everything you've been spending your whole life striving for, going after comfort, approval, possessions, relationships, those things that you work for, I'm telling you, please, if you don't see it, hear it today, they will never satisfy you. You will wander and you will try to find in them uh, what you're looking for and they will always remain just beyond your grasp. They will always disappoint you in the end. I mean, just think about it. You know this, don't you? Has your quest for human approval ever left you satisfied? Really? Has your quest for greater control over your life, your life, all you control freaks out here, has that ever really satisfied you? I mean, when have you ever said, if I have more approval in my life, that'll be what I need? When have you ever found yourself saying, and you know, I have enough comfort now, I don't want any more. And I don't need to keep working to get more comfort. I mean, every other kind of worship makes you work, and there's no rest. I should say that again. Every other kind of worship makes you work, and there's no rest. Here's the word of grace, the word of rest. It's called the gospel. Jesus came, and he died for you. He paid the price for your sins. He lost everything. He suffered at infinite cost. It was an incredible price that he paid. Isaiah 53 says, uh, uh, describes a suffering servant. And in that beautiful chapter, it has this little line that says, the results of his suffering, he will see and be satisfied. And that's an amazing thing. What's it say? <laughs> well, it says that he's going to look at all that he suffered and he's going to say, the results are so valuable, it was all worth it. That's what Jesus says when he looks at his death on the cross and what it does for you and what it does for me. He's looking at something and he's saying, look at the worth of that, it makes us all worth it. In other words, he's being shaped by the worth of something. In other words, Jesus Christ was moved by the worth of something enough to come here and die. And what was that? What did Jesus have after he suffered that he didn't have before? I mean, he was the Lord of the universe. He created everything. Didn't he have everything? No. What was the one thing that he was looking at that makes it all worth it? And that was the results. And do you know what the results are? Do you know what he's looking at? You. You are his bride. You are the pearl of great price. You are that piece of jewelry. First Peter 2 says that you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's treasure possession. Jesus looks at you and treasures you, loves you. He calculates your worth, and he is so moved by his love for you that he's willing to come, and he's willing to give everything so that he could have you. He thinks it's worth it. In other words, he's treasuring us. And when you finally, fully see him treasuring you at infinite cost to himself, that's going to make him your treasure. That's going to make him the one that you truly worship. And when that happens, that great burden falls off your back and you can rest because you know I am accepted not by what I do, but by what Jesus Christ has already done. And that's the good news. And that ultimately, friends, do you see? That's ultimately why we worship. We have a great God, don't we? He is so very good to us.